Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you brought your Bibles, open yours to Revelation chapter 22, 22nd chapter, the book of the Revelation. This morning, I want to walk us through Revelation 19, verses 11 through 14. But before we do, I want to begin with why we first open our Bibles to the 22nd chapter. I know for many of us, turning page after page, reading, learning, having what we read and learned, explained, all the bad news. And a couple months back, I commended each of you for returning every Sunday to hear more of the same. And we've opened our Bibles first to Revelation 22 because I think we all need a little light at the end of the tunnel. I'd like to direct your attention to verse 3 in the 22nd chapter, and I want you to notice the words, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. The theme of the entire book of the Revelation teaches before things get wonderfully better, Revelation 22, they first become horrifically worse. Revelation 6 through 19. And this is why the entire world must be forewarned, as bad as this world has been, past tense, as bad as this world is, present tense. The Great Tribulation in the future, described in vivid detail in chapters 6 through 19, is the worst of the worst. Daniel said so in the 12th chapter, verse 1, and there will be a time of distress, listen, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus said so. Matthew 24 and 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, listen, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, amidst all the bad news is good news for us and those who will do what we have done, repent and believe the gospel. For those who repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says through the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. What wrath? Well, that wrath that we've been learning about, all the bad news but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is promised by Jesus that he will save us from his wrath during the great tribulation if we repent and believe the gospel. Let's talk about that just in case there's someone listening who doesn't thoroughly understand what that means. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind about what you believe, who you believe in. Change your mind about how you behave. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? He's still asking that question, and the answer to that question is liberating. It will free you. It will save you from your sin. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, born in a virgin's womb, led a sinless life, died on a cruel tree, rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand, 
as God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must understand who Jesus is. We must believe in who he is. Who do you say that I am? But we also need to understand something about ourselves. We need to understand that on our very best day, our good works cannot save us. James says if you keep the whole law, 613 laws in the law, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you are guilty of all. You say it sounds like the law is demanding perfection. It is, and Jesus said as much. He said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Hopefully by now someone has come to the realization that as good as they may be, and I don't dispute your goodness, you're not perfect. And you might be thinking to yourself, well then, how can anyone be saved? That's where Jesus comes into our picture. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, the book of Acts says. That name is Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. And he will save you from your sin. He will also save you from the belief that you think you can save yourself. But changing our mind, understanding that we are saved by grace and not by works, also teaches us that grace works. There is power in grace. There is power in the gospel. It transforms us. It saves us radically, dramatically, and eternally. And it results in the Holy Spirit coming to live within you. And he empowers you to live a different life. And so repentance not only means a change of mind about what you believe and who you believe in, but how you behave. I want you to imagine, for those who have repented and believed the gospel, you are in heaven. And the rapture of the church has occurred. You are the benefactors of Jesus saving you from all this bad news, the wrath to come, the great tribulation. It's Revelation chapter 4, and you have a bird's eye view of all that we have been learning. What will we want when we are in heaven? Well, someone might say, I want Revelation 22 and 3, and there will be no more curse. And I do too. But remember, before things get wonderfully better, they first become horrifically worse. You see, we cannot have what we ultimately want and will ultimately receive without first wanting Revelation 19. Remember, we've been learning the last few weeks, heaven's state of mind is different than our own. They are rejoicing over the judgment that Jesus has poured out on her for you, for you. You're in that word, you. Persecuted Israel, the persecuted church, the persecuted tribulation saints. Jesus is pouring out wrath on her, this world, for you. And we see it begin to unfold in dramatic fashion in Revelation 19. So turn back to Revelation 19 and allow me to read verse 11. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. John says, I saw. Over 88 times in this book are those words, I saw. And way back in chapter 4 and verse 1, John saw heaven opened, and he heard, come up here. And when John heard, come up here, heaven let John in. But now John sees a completely different vision. He sees heaven open. Now get this, and heaven lets Jesus out. And may I suggest when as a Christian you find yourself upset with this curse-filled world with all its murders, abortion, gay marriage, transgender issues, lying, stealing, racism, corporate greed, dishonest government, that when you reach a point where you are fed up with two political parties that think the other party is wrong. Now, why did I add politics to our talk? Because politics and politicians will never solve all the problems of this cursed world. The only cure for heaven is for heaven to open and let Jesus out. Then when Jesus comes, Isaiah 29 and 20 says, for the ruthless will come to an end. And the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be killed. Should we want that? And I don't mean just that the ruthless will come to an end or be killed. But Jesus coming. Remember, heaven is rejoicing, praising. Listen to what Isaiah said while living where we are. Isaiah 64 and 1, oh, that you would open the heavens and come down. But why does Isaiah want heaven opened and God to come down? Well, the next verse, Isaiah 64 and 2, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. God will make himself known to the nations and they will tremble during the tribulation. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. The world has refused his love. They've refused to repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus comes down in boiling anger. There are 109 prophecies written about Jesus' first coming and 221 prophecies about his second coming, twice as much about his second coming than his first. Do you think it's possible we might know more about less and less about more? One of those 225 prophecies is fulfilled right here in chapter 19. Heaven is open and God is coming down in his boiling anger. Matthew 24 and 27, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All throughout the Older Testament, we read about vultures gathering. But here in Matthew 24, it is tied to the coming of Jesus. Heaven is open. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Notice verses 17 through 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, 
so that you may eat the flesh of things and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So wherever the corpse is, there the, serp, the vultures will gather. All the birds will, which fly in mid-heaven come and assemble for the great supper of God. Last week, we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This morning, we look at the great supper of God. One is good news for those who repent and believe the gospel, and the other is bad news for those that don't. The entire world must be forewarned. Forewarned of what? Well, Revelation 19.11, John writes that he who sat on the white horse. No longer is Jesus portrayed as he was at his first coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Instead, at his second coming, he comes riding on a white horse. Why is he riding a different animal? Horses was the animal of choice for war. Look at the end of verse 11. He wages war. Proverbs 21 and 31, the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Roman generals, after their victory, would ride in their triumphal processions through the streets of Rome on a white horse with their surviving enemies dragged behind them. Not the case here. Their flesh will be eaten by vultures. They will die. And when the world finds itself right here in Revelation 19, no longer will the world meet the Jesus we have met. For 2,000 years, we have been able to say to people, meet the Jesus I met. Meet the one who says to you this morning, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man refuses this humble Jesus riding on a donkey, offering you to come to him for salvation at his first coming. And now those who have rejected and enter the great tribulation will meet Jesus who comes on a white horse waging war against them. I should point out they want to fight him. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. John adds, verse 11, God is faithful. Why faithful? Well, 2 Peter 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, sarcastically, where is the promise of his coming? In effect, they're saying Jesus is all talk and no action. Jesus would say, verse 11, I am faithful. A little do they know, 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has been delaying and delaying his second coming for the mocker. Then John writes, Revelation 19 and 11, he is true. 
not, not just faithful, but true. In other words, he always does what he says. Have you ever been forewarned by a threat only to test that threat? Matthew 16 and 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You know, I have a better idea. Instead of postponing and ending up with Jesus coming and repaying you for all the deeds you've done, and we're talking about the bad deeds, of course, why not receive him as Savior today, repent and believe the gospel, and be forgiven from those deeds? God is not patient. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to repent. But do you know what Revelation 19, verse 11 teaches us to teach the world around us? There is a limit to God's patience. It teaches us that even though he is a God of mercy, grace, love, and forgiveness, that justice will not forever tolerate injustice, that truth will not forever tolerate lies, and that Righteousness will not forever tolerate wickedness. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, John writes, verse 12, that his eyes are a flame of fire. Nothing escapes his 2020 vision. Jesus can see what no man can. I cannot see what is in your heart, and you, you cannot see what is in mine. But Hebrews 4 and 13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Jesus knows your deeds. He knows all the bad deeds. He even knows the ones that you think are good, but really are bad. Because he knows what is in you. Why would anyone want to meet the Jesus who will ride on a white horse and do battle with him? When today they can meet the one who rides on a donkey, humble, inviting you to come. You will notice in verse 12, on his head are diadems. These are crowns. This is the ruler's crown. Many victories. Remember, he came to wage war. And we read in 2 Samuel 12 and 30 that David took the crown of the Ammonites king from his head, and it was placed on David's head. David was victorious over another king. Again, verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Now, now look at verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. Lots of kings on this earth, but there's only one who is king of kings, and he will take all the diadems away. He will wage war with all who want to wage war with him. Revelation 12 and 3, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. We now know from previous lessons, the great dragon is the devil himself, and we also know he is the ruler of this world. And we also know Jesus is coming to take what is rightfully his. Revelation 11 and 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And before things get wonderfully better, they first become horrifically worse. How bad will it get? Well, John writes in verse 13 that is clothed, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Let's stop there. The blood here is not a reference to his death on the cross. Remember, this is a picture of him coming in judgment. The blood is the blood of his slaughtered enemies. The question often asked 
is, why are his garments blood spattered before the battle has begun? Now look again at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse <clears throat> and against his army. They're not fighting. They are assembling to fight. What if I told you this is not his first battle? What if I told you this is his last battle? Allow me to explain. Put on your thinking caps. Follow along. I'm going to take you back to Jacob in the book of Genesis. Genesis 32. Jacob wrestled with a man. Hosea chapter 12 calls this man the angel of the Lord. That man, that angel, changed Jacob's name to Israel, which means one who fights with God. Fight Israel. Fight God. Jacob had a question for the man, the angel of the Lord. Genesis 32 and 29, please tell me your name. The angel responded, why is it that you ask my name? Manoah had a very similar encounter with this very same angel. Judges 13, 17, and 18, Manoah said, what is your name? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Only this time the angel gives an answer. Seeing it is wonderful. The angel's name is wonderful. Who do we know with the name wonderful? Isaiah 9 and 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his name will be called Wonderful. That's talking about his first coming. One of those 109 prophecies of his first coming, Jesus is that child born to us. Jesus is that son given to us whose name is Wonderful. But this is what we call a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation to a human being of God. Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, is the only member that ever appears like a man in the Older Testament. Listen to what Moses writes about this angel. Exodus 23, 20 through 24. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into a place which I have prepared. Be on guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. Now, this angel is not Michael the archangel, who we know from the book of Daniel is the archangel for the sons of God's people, Israel. Did you hear my name is in him? But did you also hear this angel pardons sins? The Jewish people understand only one person can pardon sin. Luke 5, 20 and 21, seeing their faith, he said, friend, this is Jesus, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This angel, the angel of the Lord who forgives sins, whose name is Wonderful, 
is no ordinary angel. Uh, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, who alone can forgive sins. And this explains why he has blood before the battle. Exodus 3, but if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and will completely destroy them. Anyone this morning know an Amorite, a Hittite, a Parasite, a Canaanite, a Hivite, or a Jebusite? But how many of us know an Israelite, a Jew? I just gave you reason to believe, reason to increase your faith. Israel is our greatest visible, physical, verifiable evidence that God exists because no nation smaller in numbers has been hated by more nations larger in numbers. And yet she is still there, and I'll tell you why. Jesus has a robe, clothes, dipped in blood before the battle began. I remind you, Revelation 12 and 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman, and we know the woman is Israel. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God. What if I told you this is not his first battle? What if I told you this is his last battle? Listen, in defending Israel. Notice in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. This identifies him unmistakably as the Lord Jesus at his, at his incarnation, at his first coming. First coming, John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chicago politics is an expression. It's fixed. In other words, whatever the situation is, it has been taken care of beforehand behind closed doors. This army assembling to fight us in verse 19 does not have a fighting chance. They're fighting Jesus. They're fighting four four divisions that make up an army. Look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Four divisions make up this army. Earlier in chapter 19, the bride of the Lamb, the church, was pictured wearing fine linen, white and clean. We, the church, will accompany Christ. So will the tribulation believers who are also pictured in heaven wearing white robes, Revelation 7 and 9. The third group is the Older Testament saints who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. You may remember when speaking about the marriage supper of the Lamb where Israel is invited to this marriage supper in the kingdom. Matthew 22 and 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. What color are these wedding clothes? White. Who is the fourth group? Well, the holy angels, Matthew 25 and 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Speaking of angels, Acts 1 and 10, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. So this army in verse 14 is made up of church folk, believing Israel, tribulation saints, and angels. The fix is in. What did we learn last week about three of these four groups in this army? They all have a resurrected, imperishable body. How are those assembling an army of all the nations in the world with perishable bodies? Birds will be eating their flesh. How are they going to stand any kind of a chance against Jesus and his army? All of which have imperishable bodies. Well, another lesson. Next week, one more. We're getting close to our talks on the Millennial Kingdom in a few weeks. I sure hope you join us for that. I sure hope our lesson this morning blessed you. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.